morning. If you'll turn with me, open your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from verses 12 through 25. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 12. Before I read, I just want to remind you where we're at. I said we're celebrating Good Friday twice. We, we will eventually. What I meant to say was that we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday twice. Because today's Palm Sunday, but last week we saw Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday in the first 11 verses of this chapter. We saw that this is, at this moment, way in chapter 11, the messianic secret is finally up. Jesus has went public. He has rode in on the donkey, Zechariah 9.9, showing that he is the coming Messiah, fulfilling prophecy. And the people saw it, and the people recognized it. Jesus' kingship has gone public. And when he got to the temple, though, he looked around and he went back home to sleep for the night. Malachi, though, tells us that verse, this is chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. That's in reference to John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. The first action that Jesus does, the first action at Jesus as the king didn't actually happen on the Sunday, Palm Sunday, but happened on the Monday. And if you notice, Palm Sunday, Monday, we're inching our way closer to his crucifixion that will happen now at this point, just four days from this reading. Let's then pick up, with that in mind, pick up at Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were asking and seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. 
they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive that you have anything against any, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. This is the inerrant and inspired word of the living God. Thanks be to God, yes. That's a good response when you hear that. You know, we, I keep saying this, but I think it's because it's true. At least I hope it's true, and you're seeing that. As we're going through the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing almost every week different strange things, odd, peculiar things that direct our attention and direct our focus. I think that makes sense why the apostles would have this brought to their mind, that the Holy Spirit would bring this to them to write these things down and record it, not because it's the average everyday thing that happens, but because of the peculiarness of it. And one of the questions that I have in reading always and trying to understand what the Bible says is why is this text here? What's it trying to communicate? And how do all the pieces fit together? In a kind of a universal or rather more broad sweeping motif that's in this section of scripture, in these temple interactions that range from chapter 11 to the end of chapter 13, is you see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and he's directly confronting their rejection of his authority. And when Jesus shows that he is the Messiah, the, kid, the God, God the Father's anointed one, that rejection is absolutely unacceptable. And Jesus faces their rejection head on in this section. Jesus has already visited, and we got to Tuesday by verse 20 here, the second time he goes to the temple. But this time he comes to start flipping tables. What's going on here? Well, it has something to do with Jesus's authority and their rejection of it. And the same thing is true. The same dynamic is at play in Jesus's instruction about prayer. And the thing I want you to get probably first, and we, we're going to kind of move our way through this text, looking at the authority of Jesus and how it relates to us. But we have to start off where the text starts off. We have judgment is coming. And the first thing we see judgment on is on a tree. And that's that first fill in the blank, if you look in your bulletins. That there's judgment on a tree. 
We're told that Jesus was hungry. Jesus had spent the night in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and it seems like he must have skipped breakfast in his effort to get to the temple to do the task that he was set out to do. He's hungry. I think we need to make sure we don't gloss over this fact to realize that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, when he became a man, he became a real human being. He did not have our sin, but he did have all our weaknesses, all our frailty. He got hungry. He got tired. And Mark constantly is pointing this out to us to realize that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, had a true humanity. But his hunger really isn't the main issue here. It's more of the setup here. Jesus is hungry and he sees a fig tree in leaf from a distance. And he goes up to see if there's any fruit on it. And he doesn't find any and curses it. And probably the first thing to note here is something Mark is the only one who tells us. Something that would have been obvious to every other reader, and which is why probably Matthew and Luke don't include this statement. It's the statement at the end of verse 13. When the reason why we're given, the natural reason why the fig tree is not bearing fruit is because it was not the season for figs. Then what's going on here? You see, Passover happens. Jesus came in riding in Jerusalem, announcing himself as a king during a very specific time. It was the time of Passover, which would happen on the Jewish calendar either at the end of March or in early April, which we celebrate it in early April. But Jesus comes in during this time. He would have known that fig trees do not sprout figs in March or in April, but actually two months later in the month of June is the normal season when fig trees actually have figs. So that's why the disciples seem probably so curious to be like, well, why are we going up to this tree? What's going on here? Jesus curses it, and the disciples remember this moment, probably out of the oddness of it. And Mark telling us explicitly that it's not the fig tree season shows us that the disciples knew this information and that it's not going to be whatever's coming up next. It's not going to be about a tree. You know, Muslims actually quote this text a lot in their explanation for why they don't believe Jesus is divine, why he's God. Because God would surely know that a fig tree, when it's going to be in bloom, if he's the creator of the universe. But that's not the point. Jesus is actually illustrating judgment, not on the tree for the tree's sake, but for his disciples and for the disciples' sake. What did the fig tree represent? It represented Israel. Hosea chapter 9, Jeremiah chapter 24, Isaiah chapter 1, and we could keep going on and on and see that Israel is pictured throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the prophetic literature, as a fig tree. 
which God expects when he comes to it to find fruit on it. Jesus is trying to connect here in the minds of the people that it's not about the tree. And we should see that, actually, if we just take a step back from a moment, we see that this is exactly what Jesus, or rather what Mark wants us to get, because we see the fig tree introduced, the curse. We have this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and then we return to the fig tree. Everything in between relates to that moment. It's not judgment on a free on a tree. But instead, we get to see what the significance of that judgment is. Verse 15, they come into Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to do what? Well, reading Malachi chapter 3, we would expect him to come in to redeem Israel. But that's not what he did. If first it was judgment on the tree, the answer to that question is no. Here we have is judgment on the temple, and the answer is absolutely. Jesus brings judgment on the temple. Typically, we've heard this label, this whole scene, as the temple cleansing. And just in that very title, which appears in my ESV as a little subtitle for this section, There's a certain assumption of what Jesus is trying to do when he's clearing out the temple. We see him getting rid of and stopping everyone who's buying and anyone who's selling animals and animal sacrifices, stopping the money changers from doing their business. And he actually doesn't even allow, verse 16, anyone to carry anything through the temple. And our minds might go to, Maybe thinking through what this temple is, a house of worship. And when we look at the different practices, we might thinking that what God is, what Jesus is bringing judgment on in this moment is commercialism. That what he's against is what the fact that they're buying and selling anything within the temple. The problem with that, though, is where they're located. Mark says in the temple... But the temple, saying that, defines a whole region, uh, a whole area, which is could be called, termed Gentile, or sorry, called temple. And where they're actually conducting the business, Matthew and Luke tell us, is in the court of the Gentiles. There are spots in the temple, this huge temple mount, where Gentiles are allowed to go, are allowed to approach, but they're not allowed to go past a certain point and what the what they have done here in setting all this up is they're aiding the sacrificial system everyone here is coming for passover what do you need to bring to sacrifice at passover animals and lots of them and if you're traveling a really long distance what you wouldn't do is bring or at least it'd be pretty inconvenient to bring your own animals Instead, what you brought was your money. And you'd go to the temple, you make the exchange to get your sacrifices, and you'd be on your way. And there was some corruption in this. Selling different animals, different blemished animals that were not of a sacrifice to yourself. 
not having to bring the animals and going for convenience. Money changers, if you're going throughout the whole Roman Empire, you had to exchange Roman currency or whatever kind of currency you had into the currency that the Jews used. That's the money changers and the money temple or tables that Jesus flipped. And it makes sense that there's a pretty common practice that you would and you would bump up the exchange rate so that you could make some profit for yourself. I'm not saying there's no corrupt practices here, but what is Jesus actually accomplishing in stopping all this? Well, we're fortunately told exactly why he's coming and why he's judging what's going on in the temple. Verse 17 is absolutely key here. In verse 17, he's teaching them what he's doing and saying to them, is it not written, a.k.a. in the scriptures, in their Bibles, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers. I pause there because Jesus is combining two different Old Testament quotes here. The first half, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, is quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 56. And the other is the text that we just had read for us that they have made the house of God into a den of robbers. It was quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 10. And if we look at both of those texts, what is God telling the people of Israel? He's telling them and warning them that God's judgment is coming. Why? Because they do not have faith in God. And instead, they've evidenced that they do not want to serve God, but instead want to serve themselves. They want to follow after whatever sin, whatever pleasure is of their own making, and thinking because they're in their temple, they're safe from God's judgment. He says they're a den of robbers. Let me read a quote. This is from a commentary that I read this past week, that if we think about this, robbers are not swindlers, but bandits. They do not do their robbing in their den. The den is the place where the robbers retreat after having committed their crimes. It's their hideout. What's Jesus doing here? A den is a hideout for criminals. That's what they've turned the temple into. Sure, there are corrupt exchange practices. There's maybe some bad commercialistic attitudes in the people, but it's actually a much larger problem than that. When Jesus is stopping all the activity in the temple, he's subverting the people who allowed for it the people who are letting this go on, the authority of the chief priests and the Pharisees, which is why the reaction in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. 
You see, the fact that they wanted to kill Jesus has been pretty clear since the beginning of Mark's gospel. They've already decided that that they want to kill him. The question is, is how? Jesus just rode in to Jerusalem announcing he's the Messiah, and Jesus is popular with the crowds. And the question for the Pharisees at this point is seeing that something has to be done. This man is halting our entire sacrificial system. He's bringing it to entire halt. The Gentiles who are coming to make sacrifices, not going to be able to. Not on Jesus' watch. Not while they are making it a den, a hideout for criminals. The time for them to kill Jesus needed to be now. And the how was going to be a little complicated, but they're going to figure it out. They're not thieves. Thieves do their stealing in secret. Robbers commit open, fragrant violence without any repercussions of the law. And the biggest sin which the Pharisees and the scribes are going to commit is the rejection of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we get to see why this cursing is in verse 20 that they come up and they see that the fig tree that they that Jesus cursed withered away to its roots. You see Jerusalem was like this fig tree. From a distance full of leaves, optimistic, hopeful that there is going to be spiritual fruit on that tree. But as soon as you get close, on cl upon closer inspection, what you realize is that it's rotten to its core. That there's no fruit to be had on it anywhere. The judgment's not coming on a tree. It's coming on Jerusalem itself, represented in its leadership. And Jesus targets the thing that they thought held them safe the temple itself. Judgment would come on them and there was not going to be any protection for them. We get to see here now why in verse 11, that first entrance that Jesus had into the temple, what was going on there? On Sunday, Jesus entered the temple, but his first act was to look around, all around to see what's going on in the temple. And his second act is to come in judgment. You see, Jeremiah 7, verse 11, after warning that it's a den of robbers that they have turned the temple into, that they should have no security in it, what does verse 11 say? For I, the Lord your God, am watching you and see everything that you're doing. We have to be careful at this point. If Jesus was to come back Today, what would he find? If he showed up at Evergreen, would we see, would he see hypocrites, liars, people who have a good outward show, 
People who are really kind and nice people. But when you examine their lives, the only thing they have is not fruit, but hatred for God. Is that what they're going to see? You know, you can deceive a lot of people. You can deceive me. You can deceive Robert. You can deceive Steve. You can deceive everyone in this room. You can deceive your parents, maybe. But you will not be able to deceive God. And thinking that you can hide in the midst of this group of people, seeing that, you know what, I belong, I'm a member of Evergreen Community Church. If you think that's going to protect you from the wrath of God upon your sins, upon every hypocrite, think twice about that. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is actually part of a much broader principle. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Peter 4 is telling Christians, do not be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon us. Don't be surprised by suffering as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, for it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? God does actually seem to put a premium, responsibility-wise, on people who know what they are rejecting. It's one thing, Romans 2 says, for the Gentiles who have no experience of God, do not know any of his promises, and sin. They will receive judgment for their sin. But the judgment is so much greater for those who grow up in church, for those who learn the promises of God, for those who see his graciousness, for those who see the evidence of his grace transforming the lives of sinners around us. but then reject what they know to be true deep down. That's a dangerous place to be. In the ordering of God's judgment, it comes first upon God's people, then the world. First upon Israel in the rejection of their Messiah, corporately speaking, then upon the world. Whose sins should we be most concerned about living in a very perverted culture? Our focus and our fixation is often on the sins of the world. Is it not? Especially when things are going crazy. Especially when people are denying fundamental reality. We should be concerned where people and their actions are bringing them. We should be concerned for the world. The sins that we should be most concerned with repenting of and changing are our own. Don't be a hypocrite. You cannot escape God's sight. The judgment is upon Jerusalem. What's Peter's reaction to this, though? What about for those who don't reject Jesus Christ and his authority? 
What about those who turned from their sin and placed their trust in Jesus Christ? Does following Jesus Christ have any application for us when he comes in judgment? Well, what we have here, at least straight in the bare minimum, is the evidence that the judgment Jesus brings and brought is by God's authority. That's that third fill in the blank. Judgment comes by God's authority. There shouldn't be any question among us by what authority is Jesus flipping over tables, clearing out a house, and saying that this is his father's house. It's because Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the rightful King. And when he's taking over this house, or whether he's commandeering a donkey, he does it based on his authority. And it's proven by something that Peter's surprised by. Peter remembered that curse that he said before they went into town that day, this Monday morning. Now, on Tuesday, Peter's coming into Jerusalem again, going toward the temple, and they see the tree that Jesus cursed. And it's withered to the roots. A supernatural action had taken place. And one day, the tree that was full of leaves is leafless. It's fruitlessness exposed, and it will never bear fruit again. Peter remembered. And he's like, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. We get to our, our second strange phenomena here. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Jesus said it was going to happen. At this point, what Jesus is showing here is the authority by which he does all of his actions. It's by the authority of God to be surprised that Jesus' miraculous works is to be surprised that the creator of the universe is able to do whatever he pleases, including withering this tree. Jesus is showing them in that statement, have faith in God, that divine majesty warrants our faith. If Jesus is bringing judgment based upon his authority, and his authority comes from God, that warrants or gives reason, it's sufficient reason, for you to believe in him. In this faith, that God reveals, he makes a pivot here. He said, have faith in God in verse 22. Truly I say to you, verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, believe, but believes what God says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Mark's point is actually quite Simple. Be taken up and talking to a mountain saying, be taken up and thrown into the sea. This is a common expression in the ancient world of showing God's capability. What is God able to do? Is there anything impossible for God to accomplish? It's another matter to think literally if Jesus is saying, hey, pick up this mountain that they're standing on, the mountain of olives, and cast it into the sea. 
the Sea of Galilee. Is that what is really expected here? Well, we do have some caveats on this. 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Or said in John 15, verse 7, Jesus talking to his disciples said, if you abide in me, in my words, in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus is trying to, with his disciples here, not give all the nuance that we might normally want and expect. Fortunately, we have the whole Bible to show us what we are to expect when we pray. That we're a pray according to his will, the will of God, and knowing that if we abide in Christ, it's on that condition that we ask for whatever we want, it'll be given. But Jesus is not giving the conditions here. He's focusing on what Peter saw as miraculous. Think about the expression of faith in God. You know, it's often, it's too often today that Christians and the way they live and the way they think about the universe is no different from any atheist around us. We live walking through this world thinking things just happen by chance, that our suffering has no meaning, no purpose that we're just victims of chance. We pray, God, may you please save this person, but we add that caveat, caveat, may your will be done, not really as a way of hedging and saying that we really do entrust the results to God, but rather of hedging our expectations. The faith, the kind of faith that's able to move mountains Trust that God is able to move any mountain. How should we pray? We pray to God knowing that nothing limits God and his capabilities, his ability to do anything. The only thing that limits God is himself. And if we trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and he tells us no, what does that mean, dear Christian? It means that even though God was completely able to do it, he chose not to. In that point, we say, you know what, God? I pray to you knowing you are fully capable in whatever reason you had for not answering. I know that it's for my good and for your glory. Thanks be to God. He gives, blessed be his name when he gives and when he takes away. When we doubt God's ability in our prayers, we're doubting his authority. Just like the Pharisees. We need to be careful of that. And lastly, he makes probably maybe the strangest pivot when he teaches that forgiveness is basic to prayer. Forgiveness is basic to prayer. He says, therefore, whatever you ask in prayer, showing that the expression of faith being in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Verse 
You see, the type of prayers that we pray as Christians is not as isolated individuals. To be brought into the kingdom of God, to have Jesus as your king who you submit to and look to for salvation and him alone means you belong to a kingdom. You're a fellow citizen, a fellow heir with many others. You have a real connection with God, then you have a real connection with his body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time it seems like that Jesus talks about prayer, it's from almost the standpoint of the knowledge that we are sinners. Isn't that in the Jesus's basic instructions? He teaches how we how to pray, and we pray it all the time. And one of the lines in it in Matthew chapter 6 is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How often do we say that in our hypocrisy, don't mean it? Jesus there warns in verse 15 that if we do not, Forgive others, neither are we forgiven. And if you want to see this dynamic, look at Matthew chapter 18 for why this is. Kind of flowing off this conversation about prayer, we pray for forgiveness as people who have been forgiven. If prayers are expression of our faith and belief in God's capabilities and his abilities, faith as it is expressed towards ourself in recognition of who we are is a fundamental recognition that we are sinners who, if we've been forgiven, we've been forgiven much of so many deeds. And fully understanding that means that you're going to be able to forgive the lesser deeds of other people. Jesus explains and teaches Peter, Matthew, Mark, sorry, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. Peter asked the question, how many times should we forgive our brothers and sisters? How many? And Jesus tells him a parable of a master who forgave his servant of an insurmountable debt. And the first thing that forgiven sinner does is to go up to someone who owes him money and put his neck, his hands around him and strangle him and say, give me what you owe. That person who tried to extort the debt due to him and was not willing to forgive a debt that he was forgiven or forgive rather a smaller debt than what he was forgiven of is an expression that whatever faith he had, it's not the kind of faith that saves. Jesus is worthy of our trust in his authority. Judgment is coming upon all who reject his authority. And that has really large implications for how we live as Christians. We have every warrant and we're given every reason to believe in him showing that the object of our faith is worthy of our trust. And that faith that we have as Christians is manifested primarily in our prayer life. 
We can see how hypocritical our faith is or not by looking at our prayers. Do we believe in God's capabilities? And we can see also, maybe the second line of that is looking at our forgiveness of others. I want to end with a quote from Alistair Begg about this sermon that I couldn't get out of my mind. He gave a warning. Unforgiveness may be the number one killer of genuine spiritual life. Do not tell me you are a prayer warrior. Do not tell me you are seeking God if you harbor enmity against your brother or your sister in Christ. Three things will destroy your trust, your faith, living in unrepentant immorality, having anger, and having an unforgiving spirit. Those three things there. You know, if you talk to me and you say, you know, I've, if I meet, visit you in about five years or so, and you say, you know, I, listening to preaching, reading the Bible, it used to do something for me, but it doesn't really anymore. Let's check the fruit of that tree. I bet you that person who's no longer finding satisfaction in the worship of God has some sort of immorality that they've been fostering in secret, that they've been unwilling to give up and repent of. I bet that person is having anger towards God, unresolved anger, and an unforgiving spirit towards others. We can sear our consciences in many ways. We can fill our mind with filth, we can sear our conscience by consciously making the choice to live sinful lifestyles, or we can sear our conscience by harboring bitterness and enmity in our hearts against other people. We have to be careful about this. All that Jesus did was come up to the fig tree and look for its fruit. Check your life for fruit. What Israel lacked was fruit, like the fruit of faith. They were called by this judgment coming to check that fruit, to turn from their sin and turn to God, knowing that they would receive forgiveness. They had turned the house of prayer into a den, den for robbers. We need to check our lives to see if we have any immorality, any unforgiveness. Check for the fruit of the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us, to change who we fundamentally are. Lord, I do pray for those who are hiding it, maybe even in this building and in this room or in a God-fearing family, deceiving everyone else with their hypocrisy. But let them know that the Lord Jesus Christ is not fooled. Every hypocrite will be judged. 
a people who honor God with their lips, but whose heart is all the time far away from Him, will not see salvation. Lord, we confess that we oftentimes are prone to doing this. Lord, I would be lying if I did not say I was not tempted to be unforgiving towards others or to doubt your capabilities in my prayers. But Lord, I confess that every time I do, it's ridiculous. Lord, I need your strength. We need your Holy Spirit to enable us to do these things and to keep us safe. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.